0: Our Father, we come to you thanking you that in all things you are preeminent, you are sovereign, you're almighty, you're all gracious. And Lord, as we uh, study the word and, and we see the, uh, the path that you have set before us, we're so grateful that the Spirit of God enables us to follow that path. And yet when we deviate, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous, who, who draws us back and grants to us mercy. And, Lord, as we study uh, this passage of Scripture this morning and we, we see the result of failing to seek God and and yet uh, your mercy in the midst of it all, Lord, guide our thinking. Bless our lives according to your will today. We we invite you to be present, to, to teach us, and we pray that you will glorify yourself not only here during this hour but uh, throughout this complex this morning in every class and in every service. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we studied from the ninth chapter, verses 3 through 15. And there in that passage we have one of the prime examples in scripture of satanic deception. To avoid destruction by the Israelites who seem so invincible, a nation of people known as the Hivites, who were primarily focused at the city of Gibeon, masqueraded as a people from a distant country. And and what they were doing was playing on Israelite pride. Oh, you're from far away, and you've heard of us, and you're afraid of us, and you want to make a treaty with us. Oh, we are very flattered. (laughs) Uh, That, of course, set the tone very easily for them to succeed. And they were able to convince Joshua and the elders to make a covenant of peace with them. What we have here is an example where Joshua and the other elders of Israel were walking by sight and not by faith. They were tricked by the great schemer into violating God's explicit commands concerning what Israel was to be doing here. And I mentioned to you last time and highlighted the fact that Satan often comes as an angel of light. In this particular case, it wasn't so much of an angel of light, but it was an angel of innocency. We're we're just innocently, I mean, look at our our clothes are old, and our wine bags are worn out, and our bread is moldy. Obviously, we've come a long ways. It just seems so obvious to Joshua. But Satan often will come as if he is representing that which is good, or at least that which is innocuous. And yet, what we discover is that he is a snake in the grass. And, of course, the reason Joshua and the elders were deceived is given for us in the last line of verse 14 of Joshua 9. They did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. They did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. So let's read on as to what the ramifications of this were by reading beginning verse 16, Joshua chapter 9. And it came about at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were neighbors, and that they were living within their land. (laughs) Then the sons of Israel set out and came upon their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephirah, Beeroth, and Kirith-Jerim. And the sons of Israel did not strike them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and the whole congregation grumbled against their leaders." But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live, lest wrath be upon us for the oath which we have sworn to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them." The fact that Joshua and the elders of Israel had been duped became evident, we're told in this passage, within three days. Now, we have no idea who who let the cat out of the bag, who discovered it or who who told, but we are told in this passage that Israel sent an exploratory force to check on this, sent a force to Gibeon to find out whether this was true or not or not. And they were chagrined to find that the very people with whom they had made a treaty, these people who supposedly came from so far, were next on the hit list. And I don't mean top 20 songs. I mean as in mafia (laughs) hit list. They were the next city or set of cities that should have been conquered by Israel. These four towns, that is Gibeon specifically, was located only 17 miles to the west of Gilgal where they had made this treaty. Just 17 miles over there, up the hill on the top up there, was the city of Gibeon. Not only was it only 17 miles away, it was right in the heart of the land. Right in the heart of the land. Not out on the fringe someplace where they could say, well, we'll just make the border a little bit around over here. We won't count that part of the Holy Land. Right in the middle of the land, only six miles north of Jerusalem. Biroth was located about two miles south of Gibeon. And Kepherah and Kirith-Jerim were located about six miles close to each other to the south, west-southwest of Gibeon. Beroth is shown directly south, which is to your right if you're looking at the map correctly. And then towards you on the map is Kephirah and Kirith-Jerim. They were all Hivite cities. Remember, I mentioned this to you last time. The Hivites were descendants of Canaan, but their homeland was up in Lebanon. But a couple of small groups of them had migrated to the south, and one of the groups had settled at Shechem. And we read last week of the passage that where they specifically dealt with Shechem, the whole issue with Jacob and his daughter Dinah and, and uh, Levi and, and Simeon and the whole tragedy of that thing. And now this other group of Hivites living further to the south in these four towns just north of, uh, of Jerusalem. Well, the Israelite people who had not taken part in making this treaty were rather understandably upset by this whole thing. What? You guys made a treaty with these people and they're right here? Well, you know, if if Israel had been uh, a a stockholding company at that point, (laughs) there'd have been a new CEO position open. Uh, heads would have, quote, rolled, you know, so to speak. But Israel could not do that because Joshua was God's anointed leader of the people. And so even with egg on their faces, Joshua and the elders of Israel could not and would not allow an attack by his people, their people, upon the Hivite cities. You've got to hold back, guys. You can't attack this city or these four cities because we have made a covenant of shalom, of peace, with them. They are set aside. They are protected. We cannot harm them. Even though, notice this, even though the Hivites had extracted this treaty through deception. They had said they were something other than they were, false pretenses. And yet Israel was forced to honor the treaty that was made because the treaty had been made in the name of Yahweh. Oaths and vows made in the name of God are inviolable. We violate them at our, you know, at, with serious consequences, at our own risk. They knew that if they had violated the treaty, if they had moved in and said, okay, you guys deceived us and so we're going to wipe you out, that it would have been to profane the name of the Lord. Because it wasn't really the Hivites' fault. Because, as we read in verse 14, Joshua and the elders of Israel had not sought the counsel of the Lord. And so they knew they were guilty. Now, was this the right decision to make? Would God have said, well, you guys were really deceived, and yeah, you should have sought me out first, but but we can't have these people in the land because they are Canaanites, and I told you to get rid of them all, so you better just go ahead and do it. No, that would not have been the right thing. We know this to be true. We know this to be true because later on, when Israel chose its first king, its first king was a man by the name of Saul, and Saul, in, in his own humanistic way of wanting to, to glorify Israel and purge Israel, basically declared war on the Gibeonites and killed a lot of them, and it was chaos. Let me read to you from 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord, And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now notice the parenthetical statement there. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, referring exactly to the event we're talking about here, But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah, his misplaced, misdirected zeal. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? How can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within the border of Israel, let seven from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. You see, it was a binding covenant. And God honored this covenant hundreds of years later when Saul was king. Saul, the man who had seemed like such a wise choice for king, he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He was handsome. He was a warrior. And He was a man who almost throughout his entire reign did everything by his own desire, his own passion. He was guided, and of course, at one time we even know, by the witch of Endor. And so he sought to eliminate these people from Israel, probably thinking Joshua blew it. Joshua should have just said the treaty was falsely made, so let's wipe them out. So he's in there doing that. Not understanding that the covenant with the Lord is inviolable. Doesn't matter how many years have passed. And so he sought to destroy the Gibeonites, and now David is seeking to make atonement because the, the hand of God is upon the land because of this. Saul's dead, but the impact of what Saul did was on the land. And what Saul did was pay, the price was paid by seven of his, seven of his sons. So Joshua did right. In saying to Israel, we, we have made this treaty. It may have not have been a good thing to do, but we have made it and we will live with it. We cannot touch the Gibeonites. So the, the, the Hivites, well, the Gibeonites, the Hivites, the people of Gibeon and the other three cities were Hivites. That was their ethnic, ethnicity. But he did not have to allow them to be free. Yes, they must live, but they didn't have to live freely. So Israelites, the Israelite leadership punished the Hivites for their deception by condemning them to servitude in perpetuity. They became loggers, wood splitters, and water carriers for the rest of their existence as a nation. Now, there is there's something in this that I think is really, really important for us to understand. God has a profound respect for human free will. And because of that God allowed Joshua and the elders of Israel to make this horrendous mistake. God could have come down and smacked Joshua upside the head and said, "Wake up. Did you see they're trying to deceive you?" But God did not do that. He waited. God is a gentleman. He waited for Joshua to come to him. And Joshua did not do that. So God allowed him to make the mistake that would have impact upon Israel for hundreds of years. God is sovereign and God has a blueprint for the ages. God calls you and me to live according to the path that He has set before us individually and of course corporately as the people of God. However, He will not force us to be obedient. He will not force us to be obedient. He will not force us onto his path, even if that means that our belligerence, our mistake, our refusal to be obedient, even if that means that a larger plan of God is negatively impacted and if other people are negatively impacted. God had commanded Israel to wipe out the Canaanites and to make no treaty with any of them and to compromise with none of them. That was an absolute command of God. And yet, with only, within only weeks of the conquest, of the glorious crossing of, of, of the Jordan River, of the collapse of the walls of Jericho, of the wonderful trap at Ai, within weeks of all of that, because of dependence on human wisdom rather than upon God's wisdom, Israel had violated God's specific command and the damage was permanent. We read from Deuteronomy chapter 7, just to remind us that this was not some small thing that God had said here. Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it, And shall clear away many nations before you. And then he gives some examples. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, you shall defeat them. Then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show them no covenant favor. No mercy. That's what it says. No mercy. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, nor shall you, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their asherim, and burn their graven images with fire. That was an explicit command of God. It was not modified or compromised by God in any way. This was what they were to do. They have now, within weeks of the initial entrance into the land, they have already violated rule number one, so to speak. They've already violated rule number one. So what is the lesson for us? Well, I think as we look at this, the lesson becomes quite clear. As long as we willingly submit to God, we choose to obey his command. it's It's a matter of our will. We choose to obey his command and seek his guidance for every decision we make, his good And perfect purpose will be perfected in our lives. It is inevitable. God will bring about his perfect purpose in our lives. But if we allow arrogance to slip in, and there is absolutely no way we cannot see that in this Joshua is displaying a measure of arrogance. I don't really need the Lord because it's obvious here what the answer is. It's obvious what we should do. Uh, There's no question. I don't even need to seek God in this matter. That's that's arrogant. Or if we willingly disobey His commands. Now, in this particular case, they weren't willfully saying, this is what God said, but we're not going to do it. But they will do that in many instances, as they did at Kadesh Barnea when they first came to the land. We will not go in. That was an absolute willful choice to not obey God's command. Or if we choose to depend upon our own wisdom rather than his, and that is a great temptation for us. A great temptation for us. We are an educated generation. We live in a sophisticated society. We have all kinds of information gathering equipment. And so with all this information, we can make a reasonable decision we don't really need to depend on God. If we do these things... God will allow us to screw up our lives in ways that may be permanent and may have a long-term effect on other people. Let me just give you a single example, and of course many could be thought of. If we are parents, um, we have been commanded by God to not provoke our children and to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord." We primarily do this not by going... We primarily do it by living the example before them of what it means to serve God and to listen to His teaching and to obey Him. That we do by example. That's the primary means. We cannot just tell kids, our children, or whomever, that uh, they must serve the Lord in faith and obedience, but we have to show them how to do it by living by faith and obedience ourselves. It's incumbent upon us. Children, as most of us have quickly discovered, can spot hypocrisy as if you're wearing a word on your forehead that says hypocrite, you know? No matter how hard you might cover it up, they can spot it a hundred miles away. So, if we claim to be true followers of Christ, we're trying to encourage the children into being true followers of Christ. But we gossip, we tell white lies, we cheat, but just a very little on our income tax. We're unfaithful in our marriage, but not in a big way. It was just a one-night stand three years ago, you know. Or, or we watch off-color films and you know TV programs. Or We're stingy with the Lord, or, or we just play greedy. Or we're prayerless, or, or we're unfaithful to the church, then the impact upon our children will be far reaching and probably permanent. Probably permanent. And of course, what we discover if you study history is that the impact goes from the child to his child to his child. I mean, it becomes a generational thing, an intergenerational thing. It goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And I think you can take that and you can see that to be the history of the United States. This country has shifted from being a nation of God-fearers to becoming a nation of God-flaunters. A country that knew moral outrage to a country that today is outrageously immoral. So hypocrisy is is a big issue. If we want our children or those around us or those who we're discipling, To walk with God, we must walk with God. We must show them the way by example. There's there's a passage in 1 John I'm sure you're familiar with, but I'd like to turn to it because it really is important in understanding. Because we all fail. We all are not perfect in this, even if this is our desire and our goal, and we're aware of what we must do. We still fail. 1 John chapter 2, I'd like to read the first uh, six verses. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, the the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments." To anyone who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, that person's a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought also to walk in the same manner as he walked. John makes it quite clear for us to understand if we truly are walking with him. I mean, if we're true true believers. By this we know that we are in Him. How do we know that we are in Him if we walk as He walked? Now, again, that doesn't mean perfectly because none of us is able to achieve perfection, this side of the pearly gates. But that is our desire and that is our goal. And we strive to do that. And when we fail, we do what it says in 1 John 1:9. We confess our sins and we find Him faithful and righteous to cleanse and to forgive. And, And then we go on from there. I'm sure Joshua sought God's forgiveness. He doesn't say specifically, but as we go on in, the, in this, in this uh, book, we discover God's dealings with Joshua illustrate that he has been forgiven for what might not have seemed like a really big deal, but was a very big deal. Because the very possibility now of them eliminating all of the Canaanites from the land and living in a land that's been purged is, is impossible. It can't happen from Almost the first blow, it's not possible. And, of course, what happens is they will later on make other excuses. Well, the Hivites are there, so, you know, they, we won't worry about a gir- few Girgashites over here and a few Jebusites over there, you know. What was the phrase? The li- little foxes spoil the, the vines. Just the little things can ruin a big thing because they really aren't that little. Well, let's, let's read on here in Joshua chapter 9. Verse 22, Then Joshua called for them, this is the Gibeonites, and spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are are very far from you, when you're living right within our land. Notice how he calls that, our land. I mean, they haven't even conquered it yet, but it's our land. (laughs) You know, if I were a Gibeonite, I could take exception to that. What do you mean, your land? We've been here a lot longer than you have. Verse 23, Now therefore you are cursed. And you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water, even for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and they said, because it's, it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore, we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. Now behold, we are in your hands. Do us seems right, good, and right in your sight to us. Of course, when he's saying that, they, they, they understand that means you can't kill us. <laughs> thus he said to them, th- thus he did to them. The Hivites, the Hivites made no attempt to deny their deception. They basically admit it. But they accepted, they did it for the reasons that they explained there. And, and notice, they seem to know about as much about the word of God as the Israelites did. Because God told Moses, your servant, his servant, to do this, that, and the other thing. Oh, you guys know a lot here. You've been reading our book. They accepted the condemnation was to slavery as preferable to annihilation. If you were a Gibeonite, would you rather follow in the footsteps of what happened to Jericho? Or, or would you rather go ahead and serve Israel? well, most people would choose to be enslaved rather than to die. That's why we've had so many enslaved nations down through history. The Hivites, therefore, were condemned to serve Israel in these hard tasks of logging and wood splitting and water carrying, even to the point that they would provide uh, for the tabernacle. I think at first Israel was very grudging. Oh, man... But after a while, you know, it didn't seem like it's a bad idea having these guys do all that hard work. I don't have to do it. Have a Gibeonite do it. Have him go chop down the trees, have him split the wood, have him carry the water. I don't have to do it. Now there's something that it it is it does not specifically say here, but I I just in, in what I understand about God, I think this is true. God, in his unfathomable, fathomable mercy, I believe, drew some high bites out of their paganism to the true faith. I believe that down through the centuries there were Gibeonites who came to know the God of Israel because they saw the reality of His presence. They saw the blessing of God. I mean, after all, they had a good introduction, right? The Red Sea parts, the Jordan River rises up, the walls of Jericho fall down. They knew none of their gods could do it. They're still sitting in their little temples just looking as dumb as ever. They couldn't even stop Israel. So I think that was a pretty good introduction, you know, what we call it, power encounters. <laughs> and so I think some of the Gibeonites were prone to think a little bit more highly of the God of Israel. And as time passed, I think probably there were many of them drawn to him because even though they were condemned to destruction, God loved the Gibeonites. God so loved the world that he gave his son. And it it does not qualify it there. It doesn't say God so loved the Western world or God so loved the Middle Eastern world. You know, the implication is that God loves human beings who live on this planet, whatever they are called, whatever is their history, whatever is their future. You and I may screw up God's plan for ourselves, and that may impact others in a negative way, but God is never held hostage to our folly. I think that's an important concept to remember. God is never held hostage to our folly. If Joshua had been obedient and had sought God's wisdom, the Hivite roofs would have been uncovered. The Hivites would have been told to go home and prepare to die. And Israel would have captured the cities and destroyed the Gibeonites. There There would not have been future Gibeonite generations. They would have been obliterated. There would not have been this, this incident where we read in 2 Samuel about the nation of Israel suffering three years of, uh, of famine because of the sin of Saul against the Gibeonites. That never would have been recorded. Notice, hundreds of years later, the impact is still there of a, of a simple goof that would, we'd say, but, but anybody could have made that mistake. Yeah, anybody could have. But Joshua was supposed to be a man of God. However, the result of Joshua's failure resulted in many, many generations of Hivites being born, living, and dying within Israel. But God only knows how many of them came to faith in Him. How many Gibeonites will we discover one day in heaven? I don't know. But I'm sure there will be some. Just as, as I'm sure of the character and the nature of God Himself. Thus, our folly in mistakes we make may negatively impact the kingdom of God and may have some permanent impact, but it will not halt the inevitable victory of the kingdom of God. Conversely, however, the downside is we don't know how many Israelites were seduced by the Hivite gods and chose not to follow Israel but to follow the gods of the Hivites. See, that was one of the primary reasons God wanted all the Canaanites eliminated out of the land, that they wouldn't be there to suck Israel into false worship. You know, if you go back and study the history of the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, you'll discover that, for example, the ancient Greeks under Alexander the Great, when when he conquered all the way over to the Indus River, he carried along with him excess Greeks and Macedonians and settled them down in what were known as Palii. And the idea was that they would be little showcases of Greek culture and the people around it would look at this little community and they'd say, Whoa, we like that lifestyle. And and through this, they would slowly be Hellenized. They would become like Greeks. Well, the Romans did the same thing as they crossed over the Alps and went into northern Europe. And and they conquered the land uh, called Gaul, which we today call France. They conquered Britain. They established little colonies, they called them. And and they settled Romans there. And and the idea was from these colonies, the the, the culture of the Romans would spread. It would be attractive. Others would come in. It would be showcased and would convert the whole area. Well, you can see this in reverse. If little pockets of, of Canaanites are left here and there, Israelites who, who are kind of numb by their living in their land and have become dull in their faith will look at this and say, "Woo! you know, that's pretty uh, scintillating over there. Look at what they do, you know. They get, to have, they get to do things we're forbidden to do, and it's part of their worship. Mm. Their gods are happy with it. And, and so they get sucked in, You get sucked in. And so Israel always had in its midst worshippers of Baal, so to speak. Baal using that in the broad sense of many of the pagan gods. So Israel was polluted and Israel was, was, was not what God had ordained them to be. His will was what? All the Canaanites would be removed and Israel would be in the land. But within weeks, that already was not possible. Because the great Joshua, man of God, successor to Moses had not sought the counsel of the Lord, but decided he knew best. That's a powerful warning to us, because it's easy for us to say, oh, I won't bother God with this. It's it's obvious what I should do here, really. Now, of course, people can go to extremes that some of us might think are silly, but others do not think it's silly at all, even praying about what I should buy at the grocery store, you know. Shall I bother God uh, about that? Well, you know, some people are convinced that God cares about every little thing in our lives. And, you know, not that there's any sin in, in buying this brand over that brand. But it, it, it could be that, that just controlling your appetite, so to speak, and, and, and your greed and, and the things that would cause us to be acquisitive, even committing that to him, would be an important part of our lives. So I think the events that took place here in Joshua's life are, are a very powerful example to us. They're recorded to us for this specific for us, for this specific purpose. Well, next week, um, we're going to look at the 10th chapter. And this is a really amazing chapter. Because described in the 10th chapter is an event which many people say proves that the Bible cannot be true. That it's full of myth and legend because how in the world could the sun stand still in the sky for a full day? You know, that, that can't happen. Well, we'll see.